Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening, where we are set to talk about another movie. And uh, I know we were unavailable last week. We were out of town, but uh, we are set to go this evening. And I do have Father Mike Ritter with me. So, Father Mike, great to have you with me another evening. It's good to be with you. I would just like to point out that I was available last week. Oh, were you? Okay, well, <laughs> if we're going to be really honest here, there are a lot of times. No. <laughs> it's great to be back with you. So, Father Mike, uh, as we were initially going to go last week and talk about Citizen Kane, I'm kind of glad we didn't because it afforded me a little more time to reflect into the significance of this movie. And uh, I mentioned Citizen Kane because, of course, this is the movie we are going to talk about this evening. Widely regarded, Father Mike, as the number one all-time classic, and we're going to get into why it probably uh, tops the charts, because it wasn't necessarily the movie itself, but what happened afterwards. But before we get into Citizen Kane, we did get a question, and you know, it's something that I've bounced around with, if not you, many people through the years, and that question is, what is your favorite movie? So the question was posed to us from someone in Canada, Father Mike, uh, what is your favorite movie, Dr. Holcraft, and what is Father Mike Ritter's favorite movie, and are these movies that could be talked about on air? So, uh, Father Mike, what is your favorite movie? <laughs> you know, it, that's such a hard question for me to answer. So and, difficult. <laughs> yeah, and you know, my friends always tell them, I say, oh, this, uh, a, a buddy of mine always teases me, we're driving, I'm like, man, this song is top 25. And he's like, over the past couple of years, I think we've got about 300 songs on your top 25 list. Yeah, I love it. You know, there's something about it. I, I deeply enjoy watching movies for all the reasons we've talked about. But I but I don't know that I necessarily hold on to them or I'm the type to rewatch them over and over. I mean, I'll buy movies that I saw in the theater. I mean, I, I do do that. It's hard for me to say I have any one favorite. As the question comes uh, comes in, I, I think one of the top 25 for me... <laughs> Yeah. would be uh, this movie, uh, Calvary, which came out within the past five or so years, I would say. Oh, yeah, I think a couple years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Calvary. And, um, you know, it's kind of a, a rural co- or rather coastal Irish town and this this just beat up old priest who's dealing with these very sinister parishioners. And, you know, he it's a very kind of a traumatic story. And in the end, he's kind of the Christ figure who gets mm. murdered for his faithfulness. So he's powerful. an innocent priest who dies because of something that guilty priests have done. And uh, it's such a uh, a human, like tough, uh, earthy image of holiness and whatnot. The music is beautiful. It's fascinating. The the interplay, uh, the the scenery is beautiful on this Irish coast. So I would have to say, uh, if I could take ten movies with me somewhere, that would definitely be one of them. Yeah, and I'm sure it's it speaks to you because it's also your your walk of life, your state of being as a priest. Oh, yeah, know. and it, it, and it, it embraces a holiness, an image mm. of holiness that, that is not exclusive of one's weaknesses and one's humanity mm. and the, kind yeah. of that gritty struggle to be faithful. That's really what's on display. Yeah. So it really does uh, speak to me. What about you? Well, I'm kind of similar to you in that it's very difficult to just tag one movie as my favorite movie. What I typically end up doing and my brothers end up doing is categorizing movies, if you will, so we can have lots of number ones in different categories. 
But if there was one movie that uh, stands out above the rest, it probably is Life is Beautiful. Mm. It was John Paul II's favorite film. Is it, that right? Yeah. Um, Roberto Benigni is the star actor there, and he plays this father figure who goes into Auschwitz with his family, his, his wife and son, and he transforms Auschwitz into uh, this playground for his son. And it is absolutely phenomenal what he does. You talk about Calvary speaking to you because you're a priest. Well, Life is Beautiful speaks to me in a very profound way, in a very deep way, into the interior life uh, for me as a father because yeah. of the way in which Roberto Benigni communicates his fatherhood in, in this horrible situation. Yeah. To say he makes the best out of a bad situation is a gross understatement, yeah. you know, and that's what this movie is about. So um, maybe, yeah, these are movies that we can talk about. Yeah. Both of those movies have a lot to talk about. <laughs> well, you know, and I, I grew up, I mean, movies just for themselves. I mean, I loved action movies and all that. I, my brother and I in the summers, every night we'd go out and rent a movie or something. And that was a big part of our friendship. Oh, yeah. I remember yeah. Uh, one night we we're watching a movie. I don't remember some, some crazy, crazy action movie. And, you know, this has been going on for an hour and a half, just craziness. And this car goes off a ramp, flips upside down, and like on a crane, rips the bomb off the bottom of the car and it lands. <laughs> My brother goes, you know, this movie's not realistic. Well, it's funny you mentioned that, uh, Father Mike, because in the outset, I made the point that Citizen Kane wasn't necessarily at the top of the charts when it first came out. In point of fact, it was uh, very underwhelming in 1941. It was in the mid-1950s when it got a reboot because of a French critic by the name of André Bazin. Now, André Bazin is widely regarded as the father of film studies, hmm. the father of film critics. In fact, he wrote a four-volume set titled uh, The Theory of Film, in which he uh, really highlighted, among many other movies, Citizen Kane for its greatness. And this is one of the reasons why it really got that reboot and became kind of an all-time classic. What's interesting is that if you were to ask me the question, what is the golden thread in that four-volume set, is that he said film should always depict reality. Hmm. Film should always depict reality. That cinema has a great power and a great creative power to communicate reality. And for this Andre Bazin, who was a deeply religious man, Father Mike, uh, this was a realism that was personalistic. Uh, rooted in the firm belief that the world was revelatory, uh, sacramental, if you will, a work from God, whereby, uh, that is, film itself can capture the, the transcendent and the transient, the sacredness in the fleeting moment. Uh, we've heard the phrase, the holy moment. The holy moment was a phrase that was kind of tagged to Bazin. He didn't necessarily use that phrase, but... It, it was tagged to Bazin because he was all, all about capturing that sacred moment, that holy moment in a movie. If movies did not depict reality, something was wrong. Now, you and I have talked about the Christ-haunted culture, and, right. and no matter what you do, there's going to be something in every movie. But Bazin, as I'm sure he would agree with that, would say, let's be somewhat intentional about what is real versus yeah. what is unreal. You know, these uh, cars going off these ramps, flipping right, upside right, down, right. right? The top coming off and all it's the It's exciting, rest. but it's, you know, you're not, once you've watched it, it's done. Yeah. Yeah, so Bazin was a critic of, say, King Kong. We all love King Kong. Right. Right, but uh, was King Kong real? Right. Not necessarily. It certainly communicated some very rich redemptive themes, yes. Yeah. 
but come on, he would say. You don't walk let's away. make it real. You don't walk away and say, what was that movie getting at? Yeah. I, it's like, well, if you <laughs> yeah, see a big gorilla, yeah. you should run. Yeah. I guess that's the message. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so in this film, I mean, um, I, I put on Citizen Kane initially and, the, and the, the opening scene and that like old school, old school music. And I, I'm going to confess, I thought to myself, oh, man, Joe, like what? 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 <laughs> but, you know, as the movie gets going, it really is a, a, I enjoyed it, to be honest with you. And it, and it really is gripping in a lot of ways for me, which is odd because it's so kind of out of touch with, you know, technologically and in every, and in every other way, you know, the, the movies that we're used to. But but what is it, I, I'm curious, I mean, your take on how, how does that realism, I mean, how, how does this film capture that in a way that other films don't for this guy? Yeah, well, Bazin says that Citizen Kane was a revolution in the language of the screen, a revolution in the language of the screen. So he would talk about using deep focus, and also this large depth of field. So for Bazin, as he would talk about the large depth of field, keeping objects in the foreground and background sharp at the same time, Citizen Kane did a phenomenal job at that. And he highlights that uh, arguably one of the most obvious examples of this is probably the key scene in which young Charles Kane, right, is seen through the window of his mother's boarding house playing in the snow, unaware that the rest of his life is being decided by three adults inside. So for Andre Bazin, he looks at that shot and he says, that captures what is real. Oh, yeah. And, and to clarify in that scene, that's the parents are talking with this guy about essentially giving their son away. Yeah, yeah. You know, sending him away it, because of their own struggles. I think the father's an alcoholic and a number of other things. Or, and then the, the kid is outside kind of oblivious and just playing in the snow. And so ultimately for Andre Bazin, he says... For film, for cinema to capture that moment, what you have is, is what, what is revolutionary because this is the first time that you see that. So he's really drumming this point up. And again, in the mid-50s, it gets it, its reboot and it becomes kind of a classic. And I, I think what kind of um, grew on you, Father Mike, is what grew on a lot of people, yeah. that it speaks to something that is uh, deeply revelatory, deeply sacramental. Well, it's interesting that this scene is kind of like the crowning scene for that because th this is also the kind of core moment that kind of shapes the whole rest of the story and the, the, the kind of agonizing search of the story. You mentioned that the movie kind of opens with uh, Kane's death. Yeah. You're kind of struck by that because if you didn't know any better, you'd be watching Dracula or Frankenstein. Right, and right? that's what I thought when it came out. <laughs> I was like, Joe, what are we doing here? <laughs> you know. But yeah. it's interesting, you know, so he... he uh, we kind of open the movie with his last word, which is Rosebud, and then he drops this thing and he dies. And the rest of the movie is kind of like this search uh, through history and through interviews and whatnot to try to figure out, well, what does that word mean? And, and who is this man? Right. And we follow this man who rises from the unknown to the known. And as we follow this narrative, we come to discover that in the end, Father Mike, and I know this was a huge point for you, this movie was about love. Yep. And not some generic, abstract way. No, this movie was about love in a very concrete way. And certainly this is what Rosebud had to, you know, it all goes back to Rosebud. Right. And so this guy is like one of the most prolific business people. I mean, incredibly wealthy. He, he controls everything, has something to say about everything. Uh, total self-absorption. You know, and yet, uh, you know, the narrator makes the comment that... Um, you know, what he most wanted was love and to be loved by everyone. Hmm. One of the most uh, striking, where this becomes so kind of crystal for me, is uh, he meets a young girl who's kind of a singer, and uh, she's she's got a toothache, and he goes to her house to get, he washes his face or something. 
And she has no idea who he is, which kind of astounds him because he's probably one of the most famous men in the country, I would say. And he says, really, you like me and you have no idea who I am. Mm. And he's so taken with the fact that this person is, at least in an introductory way, offering him love, not because of his fame or his fortune or any of the other avenues that he seeks out to to, to get love. Mm. He just, because it's me, because it's I'm a guy and you love me without my wealth, my money, my power, my mm-hmm. fame. Mm-hmm. And that was so uh, striking for him. And it was the one thing, it seems, the agony of his life is... Uh, he was never able to find that in a satisfying way. Yeah. Uh, his money, his fame couldn't get that for him. But in the, the movie ends, and we never really figure out what Rosebud means. And the movie ends with just a scene, and you talk about the cinematography and the, the masterfulness yes, with which the, yes. the camera speaks. Uh, the movie ends with they're, they're going through his stuff and kind of cataloging it and throwing stuff away. And they're, you know, the, the camera zooms in on the um, sled so. that his mother had given him that at that time when she had sent him off. And the brand on the sled is Rosebud. Mm, mm. And then the sled is thrown away to be burned. Mm. And it just goes to say that, you know, in all of that kind of desperate search for love, uh, that frustrated search for love, Mm. his last word, and this was the man who had all the newspapers and the tabloids and had something to say about everything. Everything. The the one word that that everyone was searching out uh, was that word that was somehow tied to the, perhaps that the only love that was a love for him because of who he was, that that, mm. that love offering, that loved gift from his mother. That was his last word. Mm. Maybe the last thing he held on to or offered up. Uh, maybe what punctuated a life that was full of all kinds of words. If it speaks to one thing, it speaks to the unique relationship between mother and son and how we are so deeply impacted at a young age mm. and how we hold on to things. Oh, yeah. You know, we perceive this man, uh, Charles Kane, of course, Charles Kane, played by Orson Welles, who was the producer, screenwriter, and all the rest. And we follow this man thinking to ourselves, here he is fulfilling all of his life dreams. But in reality, what was on the surface had nothing to do with what was real. Right. Rosebud. Right. And what was real was deeply personalistic. And I think this is another... Uh, reason why this movie spoke to Andre um, Bavine, mm. because there was something deeply personalistic about this movie. I know you and I, Father Mike, were sharing beforehand, and you wanted me to share the story, so I'm going to go ahead and share the story, because oh, it does yeah. speak to this interpersonal dynamic. There's one uh, famous person I've met in my life. Uh, I've, uh, you're you know, not talking about me, <laughs> I take it. <laughs> I, I can't say that I've, I've met one famous person, and it was a very unexpected moment. I think I was 16, mm-hmm. and it was Julie Roberts. Wow. I was with a friend of mine, and it was late at night. We were, uh, I think it wasn't in Huntington Beach, but just outside of Huntington Beach. And we sat down in this booth, and I looked over adjacent, and I saw uh, Julie Roberts and what I would later find out to be her mother. Mm. And her mother goes off to the restroom, and, and there it's my buddy and I, and I'm just kind of looking at her. I'm, again, 16 years old, roughly. I'm kind of giggling, and... She's got her hair in a ponytail, and she's got her hat on, and she's trying to go incognito, and I'm yeah. looking at her, and I'm smiling, and I'm looking away, and I'm looking at her, and I'm smiling, and I'm looking away, you know? And she kind of looks at me, smiles, and she nods her head, yeah, like, I am who you think I am. Yeah. And I said, I'm sorry, you know, <laughs> Just, yeah. you know I was 16 yeah. years old. And then she looks at me, it's probably 12.30 at night, and uh, she says, yeah, it, it's me. I said, yeah, I, I couldn't tell. I thought, you know, she says, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I just, sometimes I just, 
need to feel like a human being again. Mm. Mm. No one treats me for who I am as a human being. Yeah. And she kind of looked at me, she smiled and she nodded and she went to her salad. Yeah. You know, and of course there I am, you know, I'm like, gosh, that was quite profound as I'm staring to her down, watching her yeah. ear salad. Yeah, right? yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but but I, I share that because it does speak to what's what's going on here as it relates to uh, Citizen Kane, right? Yeah, I mean, and this was the great like delight that Kane found in the girl when he discovers you don't know who I am and you mm-hmm, still love me. Mm-hmm. You know, however, uh, that that affection that he has for her, it 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 goes bad on him. You know, it, it becomes kind of violent or controlling and jealous and self-serving and all of that. And I, and I think, again, um, it, it has something to do with his own kind of desperate search for that, uh, that first free love from mom. Mm, you know, first free love, that, I like that. That, that he's not quite ever to recap. He's mm. not ever able to recapture that with, in having power over the girl or over his mm. empire or over the media, over public opinion. He's so desperate to to recreate, in a sense, what he had lost. Mm. And, um, you know, what's so interesting about, I guess, just as the camera speaking and what the the cinematography of it is, as he says that, wor- that word, uh, he drops the globe. Yeah, and, and what's interesting about that, Father Mike, is it's a globe. He had the world in the palm of his hand. And just as he said the word rosebud, does he let go of the world, what he thought, he had in the palm of his hand. Of course, the film ends with them, you know, this desperate search for the, the meaning of his last words, um, and they they just kind of can't figure it out, and then when they have the answer in their hands, they throw it away as if it's garbage, and they burn mm. it. Mm. So you talk about, you know, again, the holding these two perspectives and the kind of the, uh, the one scene that's oblivious to the other. Yeah. And uh, does that not speak, I guess, to this personal reality you're talking about. Yeah. This is a real tension in our life. Yeah, oh, amen to that. You know, over this past week, I've been going through the book of Genesis, Father Mike, and we're in Genesis chapter 25. And what is it? Verses 7, 8, 9. I think it's verse 8, Genesis 25, verse 8, where we read that um, Abraham, he dies of old age, uh, full of years. Hmm. Full of years. He, he dies of old age. He's an old man full of years is the whole verse there. And that verse really struck me. Like, gosh, that was quite repetitive. And I went to the Hebrew and I'm like, what the heck's going on here? Yeah. You know, and you see that phrase full of years elsewhere. You see it in the life of um, uh, Isaac. You see it in the life of King David. At the end of Job's life, he's full of years. Hmm. Uh, what's going on there? Full of years in the Hebrew speaks to not explicitly, but implicitly being satisfied. He wasn't holding on to anything hmm. versus this uh, dissatisfaction, if you will, that you see uh, elsewhere in sacred scripture and certainly what you see in, in many lives today. Yeah. So there's this intended juxtaposition between being satisfied and unsatisfied. Yeah. And that, I think, is part of this narrative. Yeah. You know, he's holding on, he's holding on, he's holding on, and then he lets go. What's interesting to me too in this movie that the child when he's given to over to his new foster his guardian, you know, the kid is so upset and tries to hit him with the sleigh, the rosebud. Yes. You know, yes, and, I forgot yeah, that's yeah. a good point. And yeah. as you pick up the movie, we zoom forward to his adult years and he's still so angry at this mm. man. Mm. And you know, and you see that anger just kind of in his steamrolling of everybody who gets in his way. He's going to have it his way. He says it his friend says it himself. 
uh, you have to have love on your own terms, mm. you know, and that, that that really is kind of a prison for him. The, the woundedness behind it and the anger, the pain, my, I might have shared this uh, on the air before with you, but my spiritual director had such a great insight, and I think the movie has a lesson for us in terms of how we deal with the, the difficult behavior of others. Yes, that the difficult behavior of others stems from a wound. Right. Yeah, my yeah. spiritual director, he used to say, you know, uh, there's pain in life. There's pain in living. So before you look at your brother and ask, why does he act that way? Mm. You have to first ask, uh, what is his pain? Amen. And so this is the deal is the movie opens and they're, they, they kind of run a reel of how they're going to sum up this man's life. And they say, that's not it. That's not enough. You need to get to his last word to understand mm. the man. And that really is, I mean, you have this man who built this empire, who had relationships and broke them in every which way. And I mean, the whole premise of the movie is you really can't understand this man's life mm. and why he did what he did and who he was uh, without understanding this final word, which really points back to a primal love and a primal wound. Mm. Mm. And the truth is, uh, the people who love us, they don't love us well. Father Mike, take what you just said and apply that to Christ on the cross. Mm. Primal love, primal wound, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, think about that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. can we possibly understand Christ and who He is if we don't first understand that primal love and primal wound? And this is such a resonant theme. I mean, look at look at all the movies that we've talked about. Uh, Murder mm. on the Orient Express. Yes, yes. There's a wound here. Yeah. A primal wound that is perpetuating this uh, this woundedness. Look at. Um, what was the movie we watched? Uh, Jumanji. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Do you love me for me, or do you love me because of my power? Mm. You know, like these A things. Curious Case of Benjamin Button? Yeah. Too, same. yeah. Yeah. So these, I mean, the, these threads keep working their way into uh, all of these movies. Yeah. Really fascinating. You know, Father Mike, this movie puts a spotlight on the importance of last words. Mm. And I've talked about this at great length in the past, but I do want to bring it up just by way of postscript to our discussion this evening. And the importance of last words, all of our listening audience, I'm sure, have been by the bedside of loved ones when they were dying. And we can all testify to, you know, those last words <laughs> that we share are those things closest to our heart. Mm. And that truth very much speaks to the essence of our discussion as it relates to Rosebud. What was closest to Charles Kane's heart? Mm the love of his mother, or for that matter, the love that was lost and what he was holding on to and what he never fully was able to embrace because of that, uh, that primal wound. And how when we are free, those last things that are on our heart are, well, free to express themselves, free to express themselves as, as we ought. I, I was sharing, oh, a, a few weeks ago, if not a month ago, about someone who I saw dying. This is years ago. She was a religious sister. She was in love with our Lord. And she didn't say anything, but she had this beaming smile. Mm. And in so many ways, she said everything in that smile. And there's something to be said about the significance and the importance of last words. Mm. you have any thoughts on that? Any maybe closing words to the significance of that? Because you're a priest, yeah. and you've been by the bedside of by many of those who have died, and I'm sure you've experienced something unique there's, we could talk for another hour about that. There's yeah. so many things I would say. One of the things is uh, there's something very mysterious about dying often and just um, 
Well, I, I often share this at funerals that the, that word to bless comes from Latin benedicere, yeah. which literally means to say good things. Yeah. Uh, how powerful it is to give people permission to go to God, to tell them that they're loved, that, that they're forgiven. I mean, we there's a real power to bless people and to make their death a blessing mm. uh, by our willingness to speak mm. those things. Um, two thoughts come to mind, not for any particular reason, but they two moments. Um, one, there was a lady who was dying in the hospital, and she had been totally out of it, and I walked in, and she spoke Portuguese, which I don't. And she grabbed my hand. She came out of whatever she was in, and she grabbed my hands and started saying something over and over and over and over again. And I asked her daughter, what is she saying? And she says, um, my friend, my friend, my friend, my friend, mm. my friend. Because mm. the, and then she died. So that, that st- struck me. Mm. Uh, a friend who I've often spoken of, and I'll, I'll leave it at this, uh, Father Pascal, and his uh, last words to me was in an email. And he simply said, uh, you know, he said, I'm not doing well. Any time is going to be the time. But the last line of the email was, um, be a good priest. Uh, please offer a mass for the salvation of my soul and in thanksgiving to God for your friendship. Mm. And mm. for whatever reason, that when I'm celebrating mm. mass, those words still have a lot of power to bless me. Yeah, that's powerful. And um, they, they continue to speak, you know, that that relationship is still alive in those words. Uh we should bless each other. We should say good things, especially uh, as a way of making our death a moment of blessing and not just a moment of loss. I like that truth that you just spoke to, how those words uh, that we speak at the end of our lives uh, live on. They have power to transform. And certainly, as we are talking about all of this, how can we not think about Christ on the cross, whose seven last words ring in our ears each and every day, hopefully by the grace of God, that we might come to understand that primal wound and and that primal love that you speak to. Father Mike, we are out of time. And as we kind of set up in the beginning of our program uh, in the next few weeks, if I don't get any other requests from you, the listening audience, we will talk about uh, Life is Beautiful and maybe God willing, uh, Calvary. All right, Father Mike, can you close us with a blessing and a word of prayer? God of uh, blessing and of all graces, we ask you to uh, pour out your your peace upon our listeners and and all of us who gather uh, through this special means of communication. We ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Father. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.